Good morning, church. It's good to see you and be with you today. Uh, Hope is a a, a human uh, need, something that we all uh, all need. We all need hope. Uh, Viktor Frankl, in in his great book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about his time uh, in in the uh, Nazi concentration camps. And he, 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 he was a psychiatrist, and so he you know, looked at people around, and he watched what happened there. Um, and he said that the people who made it through the camps with their sanity and with their integrity, both of which were very easy to lose, uh, were the people who had hope, who had a hope outside of the camp, had a hope that a concentration camp couldn't take away from them. I think as a, as a society, we, we are uniquely bad at hope. Like our, our modern Western materialist society, I think, is especially, uh, especially challenged and bad at, at hope. And I think it's tied uh, in a lot of ways to, to meaning and to how, how the society answers the deep questions uh, of life. Uh, Irving Yalom is a, a, a secular psychiatrist who, uh, who pioneered group therapy. So very, he's uh, you know, an expert in his field, um, very well known. And, and in, a, in a book called Love's Executioner in the prologue, uh, he talks about how he's kind of talking about his, his role as a, as a psychologist, um, trying to help people. And he says, you know, all the time we bump up against these deep questions of meaning. Why are we here? Where are we going? These questions of, that have to do with hope. And, uh, and what he says, and I, I think it's, he's really honest, I, I really appreciate this about him. Uh, he, he just says, hey, listen, we live in a, in a universe, uh, we live in a universe that's ultimately meaningless, right? There is no answer to me. If, and, if, and, and from the secular materialist worldview, from the prevailing worldview of our time, uh, right? If, if you're just gonna die and that's the end, if the, world, the sun's gonna burn up, the universe is gonna burn out, there's no remembrance, then nothing ultimately matters, Right? There isn't any lasting meaning. And that's what Yalom says. He says there's no answers to the questions, the deep questions of meaning. And so as a, as a psychologist, what, I, what, what we have to do, as psychologists, we have, to, uh, we have to point people back to engagement and commitment. Try to get them engaged and committed in a relationship, in a career, in a hobby. And that's a way to kind of fabricate and make them feel the meaning that isn't ultimately there. And I think that, that shows the, 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 how bad uh, our, our culture is. Um, at hope. And, and if I can say it uh, without bragging, because it had nothing to do with me, um, Christianity is especially good at hope. <laughs> like we, if there's anything we have, it's hope. Uh, and we have this to offer to the world. And it should be what we are offering to the world. And so as we continue in our series through, uh, through the story of the Bible, from garden to glory, we started off with creation, and I'm not going to recap the whole, the whole series, but uh, we, we've now come to the end, to glory. We, we, we saw last week our place in the story. We're in the church age where we proclaim this gospel, uh, and, then, and then this week we get to look at the end of all things, right? the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, the perfected kingdom, right? the perfected kingdom that Christ will come again. I want to tell you um, two things that the sermon is not before we talk about what it is. Um, first, the sermon is not a, a detailed timeline of uh, the, the events of the end times. And the reason is because uh, if you will Venmo me $10, I will send you a chart, the definitive end times chart. It'll have the millennium, it'll have the rapture, the tribulation, who the antichrist is. You will literally be able to just sit back, watch the news, and just check off as it happens, you know. <laughs> That's behind the paywall, sorry. Uh, no, uh, that's, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Uh, but that's, isn't that sometimes the impulse is like, okay, let's figure it out. When does this happen? And, when, and there's so many texts and how do they fit together? And, and honestly, your view depends on, uh, you know, it, it, on which text you, you favor, which text you weight more than others, how you interpret how one text interacts with another text. Um, it's, it's complicated. It's not clear. And throughout history, uh, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, you're like, I don't know any of those words. Don't worry, they're not in the Bible. You don't have to know them. Uh, but whatever you are, right, there, throughout history, there have been Christians who've held your view, that, that one of those views, right? Godly men and women. And there have been Christians throughout church history, men and women, who have held the other views throughout church history. And so um, it's, not, it's not clear. So whatever, whatever view we come to, and we should study, we should know the scriptures, we should, I think we should have a view. Uh, whatever, however we believe it's going to 
happen, we need to hold it with an open hand, right? We need to hold it with an, with an open hand. Um, you know, we're all, I think the, the, uh, the joke I like to use is that we're all pan-millennialists, right? It's all gonna pan out in the end. Um, and that's, that's good news. So it's not a detailed timeline. Second, uh, this, this sermon is not gonna answer all the questions about heaven. Anytime you start talking about heaven, it's just like, ooh, like a million questions come up. Like, what about this? And how is this gonna work? And, and those are really fun and awesome questions. And let's have that conversation after the sermon. Um, uh, but if, if you're interested, and if you're interested, I would love to just recommend to you, Randy Alcorn has a book called Heaven. And it's like 500 pages. It's like a systematic theology on heaven. Uh, and if, you, if you're interested in heaven, you would, it's a thrilling read. Like I, and I'm a nerd, I know that. So maybe you're like, this is not thrilling. But uh, to me, it was thrilling. So tr- check it out if you're interested. Um, I, I think he does a better job of answering all the questions on heaven than I could ever do. Uh, and so, but what is it? So what, what is the sermon uh, today? We're gonna talk about, really just kind of keep it simple. What is the Christian hope? What is the Christian hope? Uh, we'll, we'll see four things, um, four R's, because I'm a preacher. The Christian hope is the return, resurrection, re- retribution, and the renewal. And then how should this change our lives? How do we apply this? What, what does this mean for us? Um, so let's take a moment to pray and we'll, we'll jump into the, the, um, the text today. I'd love to give you a moment, uh, just in your seats, to, uh, to ask the Lord for you to pray and to, to ask the Lord to speak to you. If you're not used to praying, you can just talk to God um, and he can actually hear your thoughts. So you can just say in your mind, in the voice in your mind, God, please speak to me. Would you pray also for, uh, for your neighbor, whoever's sitting beside you on the, on the row, even if you don't know him, uh, would you just ask God to, to speak to them? Lastly, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would be faithful to God's word and that I would be helpful to you? Father, you know that we need you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you um, that you've, you have given us something to expect, you've given us hope. Would you please speak to us today? Would you make this hope clear, not only clear to our minds, Lord, but real to our hearts? We need you. We ask your Holy Spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the Christian hope? Number one, what is the Christian hope? Uh, first, the return, the return of Christ. Um, Jesus lived, he died, uh, he, he, he rose from the dead. Right? He lived a real uh, human life uh, in the first century, uh, a Jewish man. Uh, he was executed by the Romans and then he actually rose from the dead. This is not a spiritual resurrection. It's not a, uh, a, a metaf- nice metaphorical idea like springtime and things coming new. No, we, we believe he actually was dead and then he actually was alive and he actually is alive um, today. And so Jesus lived, died, and rose. Uh, and then he ascended into heaven. And we see this in Acts chapter one, verse nine. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? Because Jesus just went up there, right? This is snarky. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Right, this is the, the teaching of scripture that, that just as Jesus went, just as he left in his body, went up, so he will return. He will come back. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So be encouraged, church, because Christ will come again. He will come. Uh, We will see him. Our eyes, like Job says, my eyes will see the Lord in the land of the living he will come. And, and you see it in the next part, in that verse. It's the return of Christ as a hope. Uh, and, then, and then the resurrection. The resurrection. We will rise with him. Um, Jesus, when he, when he was raised, uh, he, he was raised bodily, right? He was raised in his body. Uh, mo- most every uh, interaction the risen Jesus has with his disciples show that he's a He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's a body, right? When, when Mary sees him in the garden, doesn't recognize him. And he, he says, Mary. And she says, he, she recognizes, teacher, right? Rabbi and I. Uh, he, what does he say? He says, don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Which is fascinating, right? One, you, you can touch him. Two, you shouldn't touch him yet. Because he hasn't ascended to the Father. The, the, the second person, the Trinity, the Word made flesh... Isn't he always with, like, what is, how does this work, right? Oh, but it's amazing. He has a body. He shows up with his disciples and he, what, eats a piece of cooked fish. You know, and and it doesn't just like drop through him. You know, he, apparently Jesus has a digestive tract. Right, he, he, what does he tell Thomas? Touch me, see, put your, put your fingers in my scars, the resurrected body of Jesus has scars. There's a continuity from his, from his human life, his past life. Flood, right? What does he say? Ghosts don't, spirits don't have flesh and blood like I have. He rose bodily. But, but it wasn't just a resuscitation. Right? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus got old, got sick, died again, Right? Which is a bummer. He got to die twice, uh, but right, he 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 died again, right? But Jesus, he says, I, he rose what never to die again. Right? He he rose to uh, a new kind of life. Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Christ is the first fruits. The first fruits are the first crop, right? If you have a, we have a pear tree at home and if the first pear we pick off, right, that's the first fruits. And if it's a delicious, ripe, wonderful pear, well, yes, this, this year's crop is gonna be good. And, and Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. He's the first one to come from the dead into this new resurrection life. And so much of what we know about the resurrection life is from him, from what we see, from his, his resurrection, it's a new kind of life. Paul will say this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talk, calls it uh, a spiritual body, which I think some people misunderstand. Like, well, does that mean it's not? I don't think he's saying it's not physical. He's saying it's, it's physical plus. <laughs> it's body plus. Right? Paul says, he says there, uh, the, the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. What, what is mortal must be swallowed up by life, he says. There's a new kind of life, a new kind of reality that Jesus lives. And when he comes, when he comes, all the dead are raised. Right? And isn't this amazing? Every person is, is immortal. Right? Though you die, you will be raised. Uh, uh, Daniel 12, 2 says, uh, many who, who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. We will be raised. And this leads to the next point. Some to, uh, some to eternal life, some to contempt, some to joy and some to judgment. And retri- retribution is number three. And this is Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, 
and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was, was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a judgment. There's a judgment. Um, you see, you see here that uh, it's a fair judgment. It's a just judgment. God doesn't just, doesn't say God just does whatever he wants to. No, the books are open. Right, the books that, that God knows, God sees everything. Everything everyone has ever done is written, is recorded, is remembered. And the books are open and they receive according to their works, what they deserve. This is a just judgment, a fair judgment. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. We, we struggle, don't we, with, with the idea of judgment? It's, it's hard to think about. Um, and, and I think that's okay. In fact, I think that's right. right? He, he, there, there is... Uh, it, you know, in scripture, that we know that God's just judgment is good and right, and, and it should be in that way, in that way celebrated. Uh, but we also know, and there's this tension in the scriptures, and God says, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I don't, I don't want anyone to perish. I want all to, to come to the knowledge of the truth and repent. And so I think it's right as Christians that we would, we would not get warm fuzzies when we think about the judgment of God. No, it's, it's a terrible reality. It's okay that we struggle with it emotionally. But listen, if you like the, the, the verses about nonviolence in the scriptures, if you like, turn the other cheek. If you like, don't repay anyone evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. If you like, love your enemies, forgive your enemies. Then, then I think you actually like the judgment of God. Because we need it. It's the basis for it. Think, think about this. If there's a universe, imagine a universe where God lets everyone into heaven indiscriminately. Everyone gets in. Right? Or, or imagine a universe where there's no God. Right? Both of those universes, there's no ultimate justice. Right? And so, what happens then when someone wrongs you, when someone abuses you, when someone murders your family? Well, you have to take vengeance, right? You have to get justice for yourself. Why? Because there's no ultimate justice. If there's no ultimate judge, then vengeance is mine and I have to repay. But we don't live in a universe like that. We live in a universe where there is an ultimate judge, a good judge, a just judge, a judge who sees all. And he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so we can turn the other cheek. We can not repay anyone evil for evil. We can open our hands and let people, let even our enemies, we can place them into the hands of God as the perfect judge. The, the, the judgment of God is the basis for a Christian nonviolent response. And, and then the, the retribution judgment is good news. Um, it's good news, isn't it, for, for sufferers, for those who have been abused, for those who have been mistreated, for those who great injustice has been done to. And they think, man, he just, the abuser just got away with it. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Because there is a judge who sees and who knows, and he will repay each one according to what he has done. And if that makes you nervous, you think, whoa. If that, if that scares you, then, then I, would, I would beg you, as Pastor Dale talked about at the beginning, I would beg, I would, I would beg you to look to the judge right? because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who wields the sword of justice. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is also the lamb who was slain. 
He is the only judge who has gotten off the bench, has gone and suffered and paid the price for the guilty so that the guilty could be forgiven. How do you get your name written in the book of life? Listen, because it's not too late. The books are not closed. They're not open yet in judgment. You run to the lamb. (laughs) You run to him who can cleanse you by his blood, who can forgive you. Who's loved you enough to die for you? Turn to Jesus today. Don't wait one millisecond longer. Because judgment is coming. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, retribution, and fourth, renewal. Renewal. This is Revelation 21, what we read at the beginning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then a loud voice, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Look, I'm making everything new. Jesus comes, and when he comes, also comes the renewal of all things. He renews everything. Right, God, who, who created and made everything, he, he, at, the end of, at the end of all things, he could snap his fingers and create us in a whole new realm, a whole new reality, something that we can't even imagine, a whole different dimension. Like He could do, what, he could do whatever he wanted. But isn't it interesting that he's not done with earth? He's not done with earth. It's called a new heavens and a new earth. There's a new creation coming. Peter talks about the, the, the uh, burning up of all things. The, every, everything will dissolve as it's burned. And well, how do you deal with that? With the, well, well, I think that's what it says. The first heaven, the first earth have passed away. There's been a, there has been a burning. There's been a thing where the temporal things are burned to the ground. right? But, but they're burned so that the renewal can happen. So that from the ashes, the, the earth can be made new. And so there's a new creation. And in many ways, it's like we're back to the garden. Right? We're back to the start in so many ways. But it's also better than the garden in many ways. Um, there's a new, the new Jerusalem comes down. Right? The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This, this place where the temple was, where God met with his people. Right? There's a new Jerusalem that comes down. This is a multinational city of God. This is a, a, an undoing of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel when all the nations were scattered away. Right? The, the, this is uh, all the nations coming into the, the new Jerusalem, this, the city of God. I mean, isn't it interesting that the, the paradise is not a, a garden? Or it's not a garden anymore. Now it's a very garden-like city. <laughs> There's trees in it and rivers, in it, but, but there is, there, it's a city. It's a community. It's, it's, it's all of, it's, it's people. It's God's family all living in perfect harmony with each other, with him, with the, the world. There, there's, uh, it says there's no temple in the city. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They, they knew him face to face. And, then, and when they sinned, they were, they were cast out of the garden. Remember, the angel, kept, the angel with the flaming sword kept them out. They couldn't get back to that kind of communion with God. And throughout the Old Testament, God is with his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, as we've seen. But it's all mediated, right? It's like, it's, there's a holy of holies. You can't get near him. There's all the sacrifices because a holy God can't be with people. And then Jesus comes. God himself comes. And when he dies, the the curtain of the temple is torn. God's presence is now with his people. We are the temple of God, the church. The Holy Spirit himself, God himself indwells us. So he is with us now. He's already with us. But he's not yet with us, right? We We don't yet walk with God in the cool of the day like the garden. But in the city, 
in the city. The throne of the God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Back to face to face. Back to fellowship with, with God. God's dwelling is with man. There's no temple needed there because the lamb is there. God himself is there. We're with him. There's no sin in the city. Uh, there, there are gates. There's, you know, 12 gates and the 12 tribes of Israel. Like you can, there's all, all the throwbacks to the Old Testament. There's so many threads. You should read it. Uh, you can see it yourself. But there, there's gates, but they're never closed. They're always open. I'm showing there's no threats. There's no enemies that can attack the city. Um, there, there's no sea, it says, which I think, you know, surfers are like, dang it. Uh, but I don't think that's, I don't think we have to say that there's, that, you know, there that you can't be a surfer in the new, on the new earth. Um, I, I think uh, I, the sea was, was a, a, a symbol of, of chaos, right? So the Israelites were not a seafaring people. And so the, the, you know, the sea was this dark and chaotic place and monsters came from the sea, you know? Uh, and so what is it saying? It's saying there's, there's no, there's no chaos. There's no danger. There's no threat anymore. There's no, there's none of that. It's safe. That's why it also says that there's no need of, of uh, the sun or moon because the Lord, their God, will be their light. Right? Darkness is, is the time of evil, the time of fear, the time of, of danger. But in the new earth and in the new city, there's a perpetual light of the presence of God. It's safe. Right? I love the image of, of coming home. It will feel like coming home. Do you remember like going off to college and then coming home for the first time for a holiday and like walking into your room and like just the comfort of like, oh, right? It's, it's like coming home. This is, what it'll be, this is where I've always wanted. This is what I've always longed for, this place. I think that's why Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. My father's house, there are many rooms. He wants you to think. He's making you a room. I feel like coming home. There's no pain, there's no death, there's no grief and crying. It's the former things have passed away. Now, if you ask me, Lawson, don't, don't you think though this is, I mean, there's so much imagery in Revelation. Don't you think this is like sort of metaphorical? You know, all of it. It's really just like, it's so great, you can't imagine how good it's gonna be. I, I would say, I think absolutely it's going to be so great. We, like we, we can't imagine how great it's going to be. I think beyond our imagination is a, is a proper uh, description of this new earth. Um, but you, if you press me and you say, well, what about, okay, let's take one specific, the streets of gold, right? Do you, do you think that there's going to be real streets of gold on the new earth? It's like gold, it's a soft metal, doesn't seem like a good, you know, material for, for paving streets, um, you know, like, it's like, would you really think? Would you, couldn't, this be, couldn't this be just a symbol? It says, oh, the most valuable thing we have on earth, gold, the most valuable store, uh, you know, the most reliable store of value we have, that's gonna be the stuff that paves, you know, it's on the street of the new heavens and new earth. It's like just showing how, how valuable, how rich, how wonderful this city will be. And I would say, I think that's a, that's a really good argument. And you, you almost have me, actually, uh, except for one pesky fact. In, in Luke 24, after Jesus is raised from the dead, there's two disciples and they're, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're walking west on the road to Emmaus. It's a seven mile walk to, uh, to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And, and there's a man who comes up and starts walking with them and starts talking to them and talks to them about Jesus. And we're gonna get to Luke next year uh, and get to that passage. Um, but it turns out to be Jesus. And so uh, the resurrected Christ apparently walks on roads. So I think it could be real. Right? And you're like, Lawson, but you, so you really think there's gonna be golden, like it's gonna be physical gold on the roads. Like, man, you're, you're so persistent. I really appreciate that about you. Uh, but uh, here's what I would say. I think we're gonna get there. I think we're gonna get there and we're gonna see it and we're gonna, oh, the streets of gold, just like you said. Right now, is it actually gonna be real gold? Probably not. It's probably like vibranium in Wakanda or something. There's probably like new, new metals and materials that are better than we... I mean, it says it even. It, where, it, the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Do you know of any gold that's transparent as glass? 
I don't. So it's probably like the best superconducting material for the vehicles that are on the new earth. I don't know what it is. But I think when we get there, we're going to say, yeah, it's just like he said, it's the streets of gold. And I think that, that uh, it's going to be, I think when he says that to us, he doesn't want us to think, oh, don't, don't try to imagine that. It's, not, it's better than you can imagine. I think you should, you should, he wants you to imagine golden streets. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love it. And, and, and if you say to me, okay, Lawson, you're, you know, you're getting in the weeds here. You're missing the point. The point of heaven, the joy of heaven is going to be to be with the Lord, right? It's going to be to be with the Lord. You're getting in the details. Oh, God, being with the Lord. That, and I would say, yes, <laughs> 100%. That, and that's the only thing that's worth thinking about, really, isn't it? To be with the Lord. That's going to be all, everything. But if Jesus wants to take a walk on the golden streets, I'm down. I'm just saying that. That's, that's just, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, if, if we look at, at the, the Von Roberts uh, categories that we've been tracking through the series, the kingdom of God, God's people, and God's place under God's rule and blessing, we, we just see these, that this is fulfilled in the perfected kingdom, the multinational family of God together uh, in God's place, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, uh, the, God, the throne of God, the God's rule and blessing, the throne of God and the Lamb are there. there there's perfect blessing forever with the Lord. This is wonderful. Now, we should ask, how, how then should this change our lives? How should this change our lives? Um, Jacques Ellul was a, a French a philosopher and theologian. Uh, and, and he talks about this in just a way that, uh, that really, uh, that, I, that I love and, and is really moving and, and stirring to me. And here's what he says. The Christian is essentially a person who lives in expectation. This is a long quote, by the way. All the preaching people tell me not to use this long of quote. So I'm sorry, I just do it anyway. The Christian is essentially a person who lives in expectation. The ex- this expectation is directed toward the return of the Lord, which accompanies the end of time, the judgment, and proclaims the kingdom of God. Thus, one who knows that he has been saved by Christ is not a man jealously and timidly attached to a past, however glorious it may be. He does not cling to, that, to the past of his church tradition, nor even to the past life of Jesus Christ, on which, however, the certainty of his faith depends. But he is a man of the future, not of a temporal and logical future, but of the eschaton, of the coming break with this present world. Thus, he looks forward to this moment, and for him, all facts acquire their value in light of the coming kingdom of God, in the light of the judgment and the victory of God. Now, in this matter, the Christian has no right to keep this truth to himself. By his action and his thought, it is his duty to bring this coming event into the life of this present world. He has to carry it into the actual world of the present day elements, which, the present day elements which belong to the eschaton. This then is the revolutionary situation. This chapter is called Revolutionary Christianity. This is the revolutionary situation. To be revolutionary is to judge the world by its present state, by actual facts, in the name of a truth which does not yet exist, but which is coming. And it is to do so because we believe this truth to be more genuine and more real than the reality which surrounds us. Consequently, it means bringing the future into the present as an explosive force. It means believing that future events are more important and more true than past events. It means understanding the present in the light of the future, dominating it by the future in the same way as the historian dominates the past. I love that, right? Wow, we're to embody, right? Christians, the revolutionary force, and he says later that hope is the revolutionary force in in our world, that Christians bring this revolutionary force because we embody the eschaton. We bring the, 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 the future, right? The sure future that we have. We bring it into the present. We live as prophets of the, the coming of Christ. We, we live as, as in, a, in a future reality that, that has not yet fully come. Now, this is Augustine's city of God, city of man. We, we're, we're, we're citizens of both. We live in both concurrently. And so practically, what, what, does, this, what does this mean to bring the future into the present? Well, first, it means uh, to work, <laughs> to work and to serve and to evangelize. 
Uh, this is the, the, you know, a perennial accusation of Christians, right? It is, man, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good, right? You, 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 all you care about is your church and worship services and going to heaven and you don't even care about the present world. Now, have Christians been guilty of that? Certainly, right? Certainly we have. But where we have, I would argue it's not because we've been consistent with our beliefs, but it's because we've been inconsistent. If you read the scripture, you read, you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he's taught, it's all about the resurrection of the body, the whole chapter, like about the gospel and the res, how the dead are raised and how we will be like Christ and he's the first fruit. And, and, and it, then it says, at the very end of that, therefore, it's verse 58, therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's like, because of your hope, right, be busy. Like, get, get busy, be working here. And this makes sense. This makes sense, doesn't it? Because listen, if, you're, if, if this world is meaningless, I'd say there's, there's, no, there's no end. I mean, there's no, like, nothing to look forward to ultimately. It's all gonna burn up. It's all gonna be meaningless. What motivation is there then to help anyone? Doesn't matter if you do or not. Right, but unless you get something out of it, I guess, but why would you help someone you don't know or you, you don't like? Ah, but if you believe in the Christian hope, if you believe that Jesus will come again, oh, all of a sudden, every person, right, someone made in the image of God, an immortal, right, someone who will live forever and in eternity, either in heaven or in hell, either with God or separated from him. And so that means we help and we serve and we enter in, right? And not just to, to the, the spiritual needs, but also to the physical needs, Right? Why, why does, you know, the hospitals, uh, Willowbrook Methodist, St. Luke's in the Woodlands, why, why are the hospitals religiously based largely? Because Christians start hospitals. Because we care for the sick. Right, because they're people that God made and God loves and they need help. Right? Why do we serve a team? Because people, like, people are hungry. They need food and these are people that God loves. Why do early Christians rescue uh, exposed infants? Right? The pagans would just expose, you know, expose infants in Rome if they didn't want them. Largely, largely girls, little girls. Christians would take them, would rescue them, would raise them as their own. Why? Because they're, they're, they're people. Right? This, is not, this is not just, this child matters because there's someone made in the image of God. There's someone that God loves. It's why, it's why we oppose abortion now. Listen, if, if the universe is meaningless, and there's a fetus, a clump of cells that's inconvenient to you, then kill it. What does it matter? Right? But if it's a child that's made in the image of God, oh, then it matters, doesn't it? It matters. We care for the least. We care for the elderly. Why do we do you know, services and ministry in retirement homes around this area? Because everyone matters. Everyone's made in the image of God. We love them, right? And, and this, the, the reason why is because we have this hope, this future to look forward to. We serve and we evangelize all the time, aren't we? We evangelize. You can, there's a king coming. You can be saved. We want people to know it. Second, um, the, the most common command in scripture, you know what it is? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Right? And because of our hope, this can be a reality for us. God expects us, from what I can read, God expects Christians to not be afraid even of scary things, even when we are in actual danger. Right? When, when Jesus is on the boat with the disciples and their, their lives are in danger and they, they freak out, he says, why were you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Right, Christians can, can, be, can be unafraid even in the face of real and actual danger. Why? It's not just a mind trick. Why? Because of the hope that we have. Right, we don't have to be afraid of 
anything that can happen in politics, right? That's what they're gonna do this year. They're gonna, they're gonna say, that the other side is the devil incarnate and I'm the savior, vote for me. Don't let, don't let the devil incarnate come and take away everything you know and love. It's like, no, that's not true and I'm not afraid. I don't have to be afraid. I know how the story ends, right? We don't have to be afraid of, of cancer, of war, of death. What, what, the worst thing that can happen to us is what? We die. Then what? We're escorted into the presence of Jesus. Death, be, death belongs to us, Paul says. It, death is only our servant that brings us into the presence of God. It's the best thing. The worst thing becomes the best thing, which is why Paul's like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm like, I'm good either way, you know? So whatever happens, let's go. Unafraid. Unafraid. It's possible. How do we walk in that? Third, and this maybe is obvious, but gratitude, joy, and praise. Right? This is why, this is why we, as Christians, we're always thankful. We should be overflowing with thanksgiving. Oh, we, we've been given everything when we deserved only punishment, only wrath. That's why we can have joy in every situation. Right? We, we, do have, we do have a hope that, that gets through the concentration camp, whether we live or die in the concentration camp. We have hope. We, we, we can have joy in every situation, a deep sense of well-being. And praise. And praise. This leads us to rejoice and to praise God, doesn't it? And this is what we, we will be doing right? in the new heavens and the new earth. As we live our lives, our lives will be filled with praise. I love um, the Psalms, uh, the Psalms, uh, are the, the prayer book of the Bible, and really they express every human emotion, every positive emotion, joy, gladness, thankfulness, right? But also every negative human emotion, doubt, skepticism, suicidal thoughts, depression, like it's all there in the Psalms. But the Psalms end and the Psalms culminate, the last Psalm, Psalms 144 through 150, uh, are just Psalms of rapturous praise, Go read them. It's just like, praise the Lord. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him in the highest heavens. Praise him, all you angels. Right? It's just like praise. And I, why? Why does it end that way? I think because the universe culminates in praise. Right? And you just you can hear the hallelujah chorus. Right? And he shall reign forever and ever. Right? We talked about early in the series the asymmetry of good and evil. Isn't it amazing? Though darkness seems so strong, evil seems so big. Ah, it's only a blip. It's going away. It's time, is, it's time is numbered. But what lasts forever? Goodness. Right? Goodness. Love. Peace. Justice. It's, it's, it lasts forever. All the death that ever was, if you set it next to life, would scarcely fill a cup. And this leads us to praise. Now, uh, you may be me sitting there, and I can imagine um, if you're not a if you're not a believer, you don't you don't you don't believe in this hope. Um, I can imagine you saying, "Listen, that sounds nice, you know, no pain, no death, live forever, new life, you know, cool new earth, renewed earth, living with 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 God, you know, sounds great." But it sounds kind of like pie in the sky. It kind of sounds like you're, you've made up something because you, you're, you're, you're too weak-minded to just accept the cold, hard truth that there's nothing after death. You, you need this hope because, of, because you're, you know, you're weak-minded. But, but you know, you, we know, we, I know what reality is and I'm just willing to face it in a way you aren't. And you could be right. You could be right. Um, but I, I want to I bring up one story, actually, from, from the Narnia books. I love um, C.S. Lewis' Narnia books, and, and The Silver Chair is one of my favorites. Uh, and in that book, he, uh, the, the story is of, of Jill and Eustace, these two uh, humans from our world who are taken into Narnia, and they're sent on a mission to find a lost prince, a lost Narnian prince. Um, and, and they're sent with uh, a guide. His name is Puddleglum. Uh, he's a marsh wiggle, in case you're wigg- wondering. Uh, and uh, so Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum, they go to find this lost prince. And they, they end up having to go underneath the ground. They, there's this underland. It's like all, all these caves, this whole world that's like in the caves underneath 
Narnia. And, uh, and they're under there for many weeks and they haven't seen the sun. You know, it's, it's, it's dark. And they, but they finally find the prince. And so they, they've, they've got him and they're about to leave. But then the sorceress, the, the, the witch walks in, you know, who's, who's captured the prince. And she's angry at first, but then she, she kind of calms down and she gets some, uh, this, this powder, throws it in the fire and, and this uh, sweet aroma, like thick aroma fills the room. And she starts to talk really sweetly to them and she's trying to enchant them. Uh, and, and her enchantment is she, she's trying to, say, to make them believe that the only world that exists is, is underground, right? <laughs> that all of that, all that up there, they're just babies making up a game that that's, that's just, uh, that, that's all imaginary, that the only world, the real world is the one that they're in. Now she does this by saying like, you know, Jill mentions the sun and she's like, oh, what's the sun? And Jill's like, well, it's, it's like a, it's kind of like the lamp, you know, it's, it's like the lamp that's fixed to the ceiling, but it's like, it's fixed to the sky and it's bigger. And she's like, I've never heard of the sun. That's, that's funny. That's kind of seems like you're just, you're like a baby making up a game that you, you just have, have looked around and seen the lamp and just made something bigger out of it. Like that sun's not real. The lamp is the thing that's real. You just made it up from the lamp. She keeps going on all these things. She, she really does enchant them. And Jill and Eustace are, are enchanted, um, but Puddleglum uh, isn't. He keeps his wits about him a little bit more. And, and so he, uh, he, well, the first thing he does, he knows something needs to change. And so he goes and he stamps out the fire with his foot, puts it out and kind of wakes everyone up. And it's okay because marsh wiggle feet are not as tender as human feet. So it does burn him, but he's okay. Um, and then he says this, he says this. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word, all you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one more thing to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. Oh, it's good. <laughs> if you think we've made it up and you think that the world is actually meaningless. There's actually no hope. Nothing ultimately matters in the end. Then you might be right. But, but maybe I can be your marsh wiggle <laughs> and ask you to consider that, that perhaps you've been enchanted by this world. Perhaps some dark magic has made you believe that this world is all there is when in reality, there's a new world coming. Because listen, if you're right, everything is meaningless. And how do you live? I don't know. But if the Bible's right, oh, the world sparkles with meaning. Everything all of a sudden means everything, right? Everything's meaningful. And listen, just suppose that it is true. Like just for a second, suppose it is true. Wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't, wouldn't, what if you could truly be forgiven of every wrong thing that you've done? What if you could be healed of the deep wounds in your heart, the things that have been done to you? What, what if you could have this kind of hope that nothing in this world, nothing that happens can take away from you? Wouldn't it be wonderful? And if so, maybe another thing that C.S. Lewis said might be helpful. He said, if I find in myself desires 
that nothing on this earth can fulfill, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There is another world coming. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. As the band comes, I, I just want to give you a moment um, in your seat just to, to respond to the Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would speak to us, each of us. I, I don't know what, what each person needs, but you do. And so would you speak into our hearts through your word? Father, you know uh, our weakness. Or you know that, that even though we have this hope, your children, we, your children, we, we struggle. We struggle to live up to it. We struggle to, 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 to believe the reality. Which we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, would we, um, would, would your hope so sink into our bones that we are people who live with expectancy, who expect your return, who expect the judgment, who expect the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Lord, would you make us prophets of that new reality? Would we live in that new reality? Would we embody it here would we embody the values of your kingdom and not the kingdom of this world? Where we're compromised, where we bought in, forgive us. Where we need to make radical change, forgive us and help us and give us strength and vision and courage. We're yours, Lord. For the person in the air, Lord, who doesn't have hope, doesn't have this hope we ask that you pour your love into their heart I pray that you would convince them in a way that I can't never can we thank you father and we love you in Jesus name